come with your tea, stop talking and socializing. <laughs> We're a friendly church, but now it's time to stop. <laughs> Who said how friendly? <laughs> Put up your hat. You've just come to it's your first day back. Welcome to... <laughs> all right, guys, welcome. It's really nice to see all of you. Um, for a number of you, I know it's your first time or maybe your second time in this, our new home. So I'd just like to just really welcome you and, yeah, sorry, I'm just staring at everyone coming in. All right, so for those who are new, my name is Faith. I am part of the leadership team here at Renewal Church. Um, standing here on this stage is not what I normally do, but when the cat's away, the... No, the mice will play. No, it's uh, my honor to be able to just bring God's word to you today. Um, and as always, whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, I just hope that his word will really just meet you at your point of need. He promises us that his word never comes back void. And so I just pray that you'll open up your hearts and receive whatever it is he has for you. Amen? Amen. All right, so a quick recap is we've been going through the book of First Samuel, and um, as I invite my friend Rose up to come and read what our reading for today will be, what we've looked at so far is we've seen Hannah, we've seen Hannah praying before God and just begging for a child, and God answers her prayer, and then eventually we see Samuel being born, and then um, last week we talked about um, God calling Samuel and Samuel responding to him. It's a bit scary because he was being called in the middle of the night. That's a bit scary for some of us, but Samuel responded well. And then we see Samuel's influence growing um, in the nation of Israel. So today we pick it up from chapter 4. Um, and what you'll see is other than the very beginning, the very first sentence, you know, where they talk about the word of Samuel coming to Israel. Samuel is actually not mentioned again in the rest of the chapter. But let's have our reading. And Rose, Karibu. Today I'll remember to switch on the mic. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Good morning, church. Um, this morning I'll be reading from First Samuel Chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. The Philistines capture the ark. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring back the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh 
and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all the Israel, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We are doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be, sub you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. And every, every man fled into into his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Rose. What an ending, right? That's our passage today. That's how it ends. And they died, and the ark was captured. <laughs> Um, a fun fact for anyone who likes Bible trivia, this is the first time that the Philistines are mentioned in the book of Samuel, and after this they are mentioned another 182 times. In the total Old Testament, they are mentioned 288 times, zero times in the New Testament, so over half of the mentions just in Samuel, 63% um, if you want to be specific. So... Random facts for Bible trivia. But anyway, so this is today's story. It's just a fight. It ends badly. Bad ending, and that's it. And then I continue to read the rest of the chapter for ways they hope, but people continue to die, so that's, that's what it is. <laughs> but anyway, so what we see is we see Israel going to battle with the Philistines, and the Philistines have been attacking them and encroaching their land. So this is really Israel uh, just trying to defend themselves. And the thing is, the Israelites were a, uh, the Philistines were a big deal. They were a really tough army to fight because they were superior. So they used to import their weapons from the Greek. So I think the Greeks were like sort of manufacturers of the time. Um, they were the first people in Canaan to process iron. And so they were using that in their weaponry as well. And then they used to fight on horses and chariots. And this is a time when everyone else was still fighting on land. So fighting with them, you are the underdog. And that's how the Israelites were going in to fight. And so they go in, Israel, and they lose terribly. They lose uh, over 4,000 men. And so they go back to camp and they're dejected, as they rightly would be. And the elders are trying to figure it out. But their question is... It's not why did the Philistines defeat us, or you know, what did we do wrong, or what's wrong with our plan. Their question is, why did the Lord bring defeat to us before the Philistines? Or in a different translation, why did the Lord allow for us to be defeated by the Philistines? So it's almost like it was his fault. But anyway, to give credit to them, they move on very quickly from the complaining, and immediately come up with a solution, and it's universal agreement. Let's do this. Let's go fetch the ark, and we'll go into it with battle. 
So uh, to go into battle with it. So if we carry it into battle with us, then it will save us from our enemies. So on one hand, they blame God for their loss, but on the other hand, they look to the ark for, for victory. And this is what was going to change their fortunes around and to bring them victory. And to be fair, it made sense that they revered the ark in this way. It was holy to them. It had been built on God's very specific orders. Um, to, to put it bluntly, he micromanaged the process of you know, building the ark. You know? So if we go look at Exodus um, 25, uh, from 10 to 22. Uh, so we just read a little bit of it, but we see God saying to Moses, have the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it inside and outside with pure gold and run a molding of gold all around it. And it goes on and on until verse 22 with these very specific instructions. And that it wasn't sacred just in how it was built, but he was also very specific in how they would interact with the ark. So we see verse 22 I will meet with you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the Ark of the Covenant. From there, I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. And then goes on and on with more instructions for the next few chapters. Um, okay, not to overemphasize their micromanaging, but God even told them the size the curtains should be, the color, how to stitch them together. So anyone, anyone who likes micromanaging, some validation there. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> we're seeing God verbalizing his very active presence in the ark. He's saying, this is where I will be meeting with you. And we also know from other passages in the Bible that the ark was placed in the Holy of Holies. So this innermost room in the tabernacle, only the high priest could go in there, only once a year. He would go in with a rope tied around his ankle because if he didn't cleanse himself properly, he would be struck dead. And so the other priests would have to pull him out because they can't go in there and it's another year before someone else can go in there. But that's how serious interacting with the ark was. So we can see why the Israelites placed such a high value on it. It was one of their most sacred symbols, if not the most. And so even now in this space where it sounds as if they're a bit too casual um, in how they're referring to it, you know, let's just go take it um, into battle with us, they're still referring to it very respectfully. And so if we go back to the passage um, and we'll read through it together, we just see how they keep referring to it as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So let's read again from verse 4. So they sent men to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Heaven's armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were also there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When all the Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord coming into camp, their shout of joy was so loud it made the ground shake. What's going on, the Philistines asked. What's all the shouting about at the Hebrew camp? When they were told it was because the Ark of the Lord had arrived, they panicked. The gods have come into their camp, they cried. This is a disaster. We've never had to face anything like this before. Help, who can save us from these mighty gods of Israel? They are the same gods who destroyed the Egyptians with plagues when Israel was in the wilderness. Fight as never before, Philistines. If you don't, we will become the Hebrew slaves just as they have been ours. Stand up like men and fight. So the Philistines fought desperately and Israel was defeated again. The slaughter was great. 30,000 Israelites died that day. 
The survivors stand and fled to their tents. The ark of God was captured, and Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were killed. So very reverent, the way they keep referring. It's not just the ark. But it's not only them. Notice how the Philistines reacted to the news. Now even they go into distress. They've just had this huge victory, but the mere mention of the ark being brought in for the next battle throws them immediately into panic and disarray, and they regroup in almost a matter-like manner. Like, let's go in like men and fight. It's like, if we die, we die. Let's die fighting. And so they're this mighty nation, and everyone is intimidated by them. They've just won the fight. They're heathens. They worship many gods. So why should they be afraid of this god? And they didn't even have their facts right about him. They're calling him many gods. You know, they think that the Egyptian plagues happened when the Israelites were in the wilderness. They don't know him. They don't have the right information, but they knew enough to tremble at the knowledge that the ark of the Lord was being brought into battle. These heathen Philistines were trembling. And the Israelites, on the other hand, were not trembling. They were good. They'd found their solution. It was guaranteed to them. Go fetch the ark, and they're going to win the battle. And so they go with the ark into the camp, and they're bold and they're confident. And the people of Israel, when they see the ark coming in, they are so delighted that their shouts of joy make the ground shake. And it's not an exaggerated claim because the Philistines who were camping far away, they were not next door, heard them shouting. And that's how excited they were. Their relief was so great that their shouts could be heard across the land. What would make us shout like that? Is there anything here as Renewal Church that would make us, don't say the World Cup, I see you looking at me, or rugby, or tennis, no, but tennis people don't shout, do they? Like, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so the Israelites thought they had figured it out, you know, everything was going to be okay. So they take the ark and they go into battle, but this time they don't lose 4,000 men. How many do they lose? 30,000. It's a complete bloodbath. And how did that happen? They'd already come in at an advantage. The Philistines were already scared. They'd come in ready to lose and ready to die. You know, this should have been like one of those playground situations where you walk up to your opponent and you just say, boo, and they run, right? But this was the opposite, and they lost 30,000 men. Um, for context, the Russian-Ukraine war, when it began, Russia invaded in... February, late February 2022, and it said that they lost 30,000 troops by May 2022, and it was big enough that it was reported in the media. So that's a period of about three months and spread over the different places they were fighting. 30,000 troops and big enough to be reported in the media. Israel lost this number of men in one day, in one battle cycle, and they used to fight in daylight hours. So this is less than 24 hours, and they lost 30,000 men. And that's how huge and how tragic the loss was. But that's not even the worst part of the story. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was captured. So the sacred symbol of theirs, the key to their battle, taken just like that. And so this is so devastating to them. Later in the chapter, we see one of the survivors running all the way back to go give Eli the news. And apparently the distance he runs is, um, I think, the equivalent of like a modern-day marathon, almost 42K, and he runs all the way back and goes to Eli. 
Gila has been sitting at the entrance, anxiously waiting. He knows that this was off. He knew it, but he didn't say it. He knew it was off to go with the ark. And so he's waiting for the news. And so the servant comes, and he gives him the news. We've lost the battle. 30,000 people have died. Your sons have been killed. And the ark has been captured. And on hearing the bit about the ark, not about his sons, Eli falls backwards over his chair, he breaks his neck, and he dies immediately. And yet even Eli himself, this high priest, he still missed the truth. Because that was not the great tragedy, and that was not the worst part of the story. And do you know what the worst part of the story is? It had already happened way back at the beginning, when they said, let's go take the ark of the Lord into battle, it will save us. And that's where their disconnect happened, because the ark was supposed to be the visible symbol of the presence of God, but it was never meant to be the substitute of God himself. And so the Israelites trusted in the ark rather than in God. They used it as their good luck charm, let's take it and we'll go and we'll win. And so on one hand, they seemed to recognize that they needed God to help them win the battle, but they confused the symbol with his actual presence. But how could this happen to people who'd seen his goodness from time to time? This is Israel, his chosen people. He'd showed up for them in so many ways, so visibly, so intimately. How did they get so disconnected? The Bible tells us that at that point in time, they as a nation were both leaderless and really truly were disconnected from God. The closest thing they had to a national leader was Eli. Eli was struggling to manage his own household. And then we have a couple of passages in the book of Judges that suggest just how far um, they'd drawn away from God. So we'll see a few passages here um, from Judges 17. Um, so if you have your Bibles, Judges 17, 1 to 3. There was a man named Micah who lived in the hill country of Ephraim. One day he said to his mother, I heard you place a curse on the person who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from you. Well, I have the money. I was the one who took it. The Lord bless you for admitting it, his mother replied. He returned the money to her and she said, in honor of my son, I will have an image carved and an idol cast. So on one hand, she's saying the Lord bless you. And then she builds an image for her son, the thief. Judges 17.5, Micah sets up a shrine for the idol and he made a sacred effort and surpassed household idols. Then he installed one of his sons as his personal priest. Judges 18.31, so Micah's carved image was worshipped by the tribe of Dan as long as the tabernacle of God remained at Shiloh. So the tribe of Dan was one of the tribes of Israel. They chose the idol even though um, the tabernacle was still present. And so Judges 17, 6 summarizes, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Uh, more stories go on, and the same verse is repeated verbatim. Judges 21, 25, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And so all this points towards just how bad their spiritual condition had become that when they took the ark with them into battle, they really did think that they could manipulate God into doing what they needed to happen. So at some level, they understood that they needed God on their side, but they came up with the wrong answers 
on how to go about it. So near, but yet so far. Focusing on the shadow and missing the greater truth that the shadow is pointing to. So it's easy to look at this story and think how silly the Israelites were. I mean, they were silly very many times, but you know how obvious this mistake was. You know how many times do we here question God today? You know when we are frustrated or when things don't go our way. God, why did you let this happen? Why is this happening to me? Why did the Lord defeat us? And then we want to fix it. And of course, in this day and age, we're too knowledgeable and we're too educated that, you know, to, to think we could put God in a box or um, that he's a statue or something that we could create with our own hands. Um, sometimes we even look down upon other religions that still do this. But yet the temptation to manipulate God still exists within us in a very real way today. Many of us will live a part of our everyday lives outside of him, but then we come running as soon as things go wrong. You know, maybe you've had people bargain with God when they're in a crisis, or even maybe we ourselves do it. God, if you just do A, B, C, D, then I will dot, dot, dot. And so just like the Israelites, our equation becomes, if I do X, then God will do Y. And that's manipulation because God doesn't work like that. He is sovereign and we can't control him. In um, Deuteronomy 20, God gives instructions to the nation of Israel on how to go to war. So in verse 1, he says, When you go out to fight your enemies and you face horses and chariots and an army greater than your own, do not be afraid. The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt is with you. And then in verse 4 he says, The Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. So I was wrong in the first part of the sermon where I said Israel was the underdog. They were not. They were not supposed to be. God had promised them victory. And so the elders of Israel were kind of correct when they said, Why did the Lord defeat us? But what they failed to see was the reason for their defeat. So now we go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And here God is talking about what will happen when Israel obeys him and what happens when they disobey. So the beginning of it is blessings for obedience and then it ends with curses for disobedience. So we see verse one. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all his commands that I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. And then the blessings are written out. Your children will be blessed, your fields will be blessed, and so on and so forth. And then in verse 7, the Lord will conquer your enemies when they attack you. They will attack you from one direction, but they will scatter from you in 7. And then the curses for disobedience are written out from verse 15. But if you, if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey all the commands and decrees I am giving you today... All these curses will come and overwhelm you. And then again, all the curses are written out. Your children will be cursed, your fields will be cursed, and so on and so forth. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated by your enemies. You will attack your enemies from one direction, but you will scatter from them in seven. You will be an object of horror to the kingdoms of the earth. 
So that how did Israel get to this point where God left them and where God abandoned them? So again, we have more passages in the Bible that point to this. So we look at Psalm 78, 58. For they provoked him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. When God heard them, he was furious. He rejected Israel completely. He abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had set up among humans. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor into the hands of the enemy. Judges 10, 6 to 7. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They served the images of Baal and Ashtoreth and the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia. They abandoned the Lord and no longer served him at all. The Lord burned with anger against Israel and he turned them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites who began to oppress them that year. So the Israelites had disconnected themselves from their very personal and intimate relationship with God. When it comes to us, we don't necessarily disconnect in such active ways. It happens sometimes. But more often than not, our tendency is to give ourselves to outward practices that look and sound great, but can be devoid of God's presence. We've got some really amazing traditions within the church setting, and many of these are there because they were established by God. They were ordained by him, but he gave them to us as a way of connecting with him, right? So, you know, holy communion, baptism, we have one coming up, worship in music, gathering together, reading your Bible, memorizing scripture, all good things that all these were designed to keep us connected to him, but it's possible to hold on to the thing and to let go of the connection. And the truth is rituals are, they are comforting. They give us a sense of being able to control our level of belonging. I feel unforgiven, let me just say this prayer five times and then I'll be good. I need to be a good Christian, then let me just show up at church regularly and if I want to be a really good Christian, maybe occasionally I can show up at a community group. So good things, don't get me wrong, but if done in the wrong context, then we miss out on God completely. Because baptism, let's take baptism, what's the point of it in the first place? That's God giving us an outward symbol of our new life as a believer. Holy communion, what's the point? To remind us of the greatest act of love ever shown to mankind, Jesus making a way for us. Reading your Bible, memorizing scripture, what's the point? To get to know God and his true character. And also to remind us that there's a plan for us, an eternal plan for us. So everything is about relationship, but sometimes we hold on to the ritual and we forget this part. And we live in a time when it's easy to have a form of godliness, but without God himself. You know the Israelites, when they were shouting, their shouts of joy were genuine. They were so happy and so delighted and so relieved to have the ark with them. Anyone passing by would have been like, wow. Even the Philistines believed it. But for all the appearances, it was really nothing. God was not there with them, and they could not even tell. That's how disconnected they were. So we have to be careful to not confuse enthusiasm with faith. You know, we could sing loudly. You know, I could stand here and preach loudly and passionately. 
you could shout amen. amen. <laughs> All good things, but it means nothing if we're disconnected from him, if we're not pursuing relationship. You know, eventually we would learn, like the Israelites did, that we can't manipulate God with our actions, and worse than that, disconnecting from him just leads to pain. So as I was reflecting on this passage, I felt that God, what God was saying to us was, I mean, we're not necessarily in danger of, you know, building a wooden idol and worshipping it. But more likely, what we would do is slip into habits that allow us just to do the bare minimum, just to maintain the facade as we go on with all the other things. And there are so many things that demand our attention. It could be our work, it could be our social lives, it could be our family, it could be our relationships. Our world is noisy. The demands on our time are unceasing. And getting caught up in being religious doesn't look as black and white as we think. It's not always an either or. More often, I think it's a sliding scale. And it's easy to go through seasons where we just get disconnected from God as we allow other things to overtake. The question is, are we able to recognize the signs when it's happening and then return to him? Because like we see with the Israelites, it's possible even as the chosen ones to see the signs, but to not recognize them, to not realize these things are good, but God is not with me. And this can happen, and then we blame God, and we try to manipulate him, and then we're upset when we're not getting what we want. So I want us to spend a bit of time just reflecting on these things and looking at ourselves and our lives, and I'll invite the worship team to come up. But what I really want us to do is to sit in small groups of three or four. And I want us to spend time praying together and praying over each other. But first, take the time to share and to reflect and to just really try to pay attention to what maybe God is saying to you. What aspect of your life is disconnected or is in danger of being disconnected? Or are there seasons that you notice it gets harder for you to, to just stay rooted in him and you're just going through the motions? And the Holy Spirit is inviting you to just give that up to him. He's saying, just allow me. Allow me. Don't hold on tightly to these things. Allow me. So let's just get into these groups. And we'll do this for a couple of minutes and then we'll close together. But let's just cover each other in prayer. Be as honest as you can, if you can, as you share with your group. Pray together. This week, a friend of mine, um, he shared with me this song by Lauren Daigle. She's an American singer-songwriter. And she has this song called Losing My Religion. And there's a part of the song that says, trying to keep my conscience clear, it all seems so insincere. 
so I'm losing my religion to find you. I'm losing my religion and finding something new because I need something different and different looks like you. So I'd just like us to stand up and pray. Just continue praying together and offering to God whatever He's placed on our hearts and what we've shared in our groups. The Holy Spirit is telling us that I am here and I want to stay connected. And He wants us to remember that whenever we feel like He's far away, He's right here with us. So just reach out. And when we feel like we're struggling, he reminds us that all we have to do is cling. Just cling to him. We don't have to be strong. He'll be strong for us. He will hold our wrists and our arms for us. So you don't have to feel like you're doing it yourself. He says the things are good. All these things are good but only when I'm there. So let's just surrender. Just allow him to be in control. So the worship team will close in song. And let's just worship together. No.